Bienvenue, Kenichiwa, Ni Hao, Jambo, Marhaba. It's time for the Arms Inquisition yet again. Episode 281 on Sunday, the 21st of May, 2023. I'm Phil. I'm Ben. I'm Matt. And uh, tonight we are joined by Michael LaFlemme. How you doing, Michael? Appreciate oh. the intro. <laughs> You're hitting on all of my, my favorites, Steve Brule, Dr. Grant. <laughs> You're loving it, aren't you? Mm. Yeah. Um, Michael, you've just written this book, uh, and I've got a screen grab here. Here it comes, Visions of Atlantis, reclaiming uh, yes. our lost ancient legacy. And there now, it is. I was just saying before, I've just finished it today. Um, oh, okay. And I started it on Monday. So now, how I'm, long have you been in therapy since finishing <laughs> it? How, how's that going? I want to say, Michael, I, um, some books are a real slog to get through and i'm i'm terrible mm. i can't abandon a book i will always see it through to the end and i remember uh sure last year the year before i started i was reading some some weird uspensky book or something and it absolutely murdered me oh wow it must have took me about three or four Tersh- months to read it because it was horrific and i was hated it- every minute of it was it tertium organum no it wasn't i've got that one it was um mm. the fourth way Whoa! Wow! Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't blame you. I mean, those are really difficult, dense books. I mean, the fact that you finished that—I don't think I've finished that book. That's a difficult book. Yeah. What I was uh, getting to is that it's always a good sign when you whip through a book. It's uh, always a good sign that it's oh, well okay. written and it's engaging. And uh, you know, I, I didn't feel pressured to finish it just because you were coming on. I wanted to finish it because I wanted to sort of find out. I was going to say what conclusions you draw from the book, but one of the things I liked about it is that you don't put to, you're not sort of pushing, you're not pushing a certain uh, worldview or ideology or, or anything. You're just sort of um, letting the evidence speak for itself. Well, that's really great that that came across because I, um, <clears throat> I worked really hard to get that tone. Um, I thought that was probably just as hard as, collating all the evidence and putting this thing together was achieving that. So that's a real, that's a supreme compliment to me, you know? Um, Cause you know, part of the reason I really wrote this book, I think one of the main reasons was precisely that there have been so many books on both sides, the debunking side and the true believer side. And then within the various subfields, you know, Atlantis in Antarctica, Atlantis in the Mediterranean, Atlantis in the Mid-Atlantic. And it didn't really seem that the debate was moving anywhere. It just seemed like everybody had their little kingdom, not just for this subject, but for really any kind of ancient history subject that kind of went beyond the mainstream 
you know, purview, um, especially when you start talking about ancient aliens or, you know, anything on that level, I really felt like it was time for not just an update with new evidence, um, but a, a new tone to the debate, you know, that it, it was not the domain of one person to declare once and for all that case closed, that it's an open story that is worthy of investigation. It should be taken just as seriously as we take any ancient subject, but that you have to toe a, you know, very balanced line so that people don't get offended and lose interest. And you also have to make, you know, what can be quite dry, extremely boring material, interesting, you know, and, and keep it going. So I'm, I'm glad that, that, that was achieved. That's a really nice thing to hear. Yeah. And, um, I like sort of the historical perspective that you sort of peppered in. There's a lot, there's a lot of sort of straight, I don't know if straight history is the right word, but, you, you know, you tell us bits about the Roman Empire and uh, early Judaism, the sacking of the temple, I think, was in there mentioned. And there's, there's all sorts of background history peppered throughout the book, which I always like. Yeah, I, I don't think um, I can help that. That's always, I, you know, that's the way I was trained. I was trained as a, specifically as an intellectual historian and, you know, people, I guess, that come from that discipline is kind of a weird specific discipline where you study the history of philosophy and kind of historical trends, but you study it in a context that's, you know, not removed from the time in which these concepts emerge. So we would never study just Plato, here's the Republic and read the book as a, isolated incident you'd have to see well what was the economy of greece or athens at that time doing that would produce those ideas what were the socio you know cultural aspects what were the religious aspects and it really i guess was just something that uh, i became kind of like subconsciously um attuned to because that's where you know how, how i was trained that's who i studied under my mentors were both intellectual historians and so i don't know how to do it any other way you know yeah. and i can't i can't just write a book that said edgar casey said this without telling you you know well what was going on in the you know early 20th century in the time that would produce an edgar casey you know and mm-hmm. um so on and so forth so so that's interesting it might be worth um telling us a bit about your background your sort of educational background and um you know because once you bring up if if you start talking about Edgar Casey and Atlantis um and immediately a certain subset of people will be completely switched off it just of does course. not comply with the worldview um, yeah of course so it might be useful to hear a bit about your sort of educational background and uh what led you in this path of discovery. Yeah, well, uh, for somebody who wrote a book about clairvoyant impressions of Atlantis, you know, it, I'm not the person that you would expect to do it. You know, I was a quite conventional, you know, professional historian of World War II and United States clandestine operations and foreign policy. That's my master's degree is in that subject. Wow. But I guess just through teaching, um, a few survey courses over the years. I was a college professor for 12 years in Chicago and you'd have to engage with ancient history and, you know, study the rise of civilization and things like that and kind of go beyond what you were uh, trained in. Cause now you're the teacher and you've got to be an authority. So when I started to look at these 
uh, timelines, you know, um, just the anthropological timeline, for example, when I would teach a world history or human nature survey course, and you would start with, say, you know, the purported emergence of Homo sapiens a quarter of a million years ago. And then this bizarre dead zone where apparently nothing happens for another 193,000 years. And then suddenly you have the emergence, simultaneous emergence of, you know, quite advanced comparatively uh, civilizations in Egypt, Sumer, parts of India, China. And then you have the simultaneous emergence of, you know, quite similar philosophies even in, in terms of uh, and if you look at the golden age of, you know, if you look at the time Taoism emerges and the time of Buddhism emerges and things like this, and it started to really kind of make me wonder, like, you know, what did really go on in this time that anthropologists say there were people who had the same mental capacities, essentially the same brain capacity, skeletal structure as us, and this let's say, fertile crescent emergence of civilization time. And of course, if you go back to that dark, you know, the, the dead zone, as I call it in the book, I think you inevitably run up against the question of Atlantis because this is a classic story. And I stress story, not legend or myth, because Plato specifically says this is not a myth. And I always love to tell people that when they say, you believe in the legend of Atlantis, I say, no, I believe in Plato and what he wrote. And let's just check what he wrote, because we seem to think that, you know, 99% of everything else he said was the work of a genius, but suddenly he's wrong on that. Um, and, you know, it's it leads you down a very kind of predictable trail uh, if you if you follow his clues, it leads you to Egypt right off the bat, because that's where he gets the story in his own dialogue. He gets it from Solon. Solon gets it from the temple priests in lower Egypt and says, and then that leads you, okay, well, let's look deeper into pre-dynastic Egypt and so on and so forth. But you always run up against this kind of dead zone. It, it, it Even the ancient records, let's say the Egyptian records, it's like even their own pre-dynastic records only go back, few depending on how people translate certain hieroglyphs 18,000 BC or something like that let's say you know on an extreme on an extreme level of what certain people have interpreted and so you really start wondering like could there have really been something um around at that time and the really the only way to get a picture or a vision if you will of what that reality would have even looked like is through clairvoyance or through remote viewing and really looking at what do multiple accounts that have no way of corroborating with each other through different periods of time. And to me, the best ones being ones that were very early, you know, before any analog to that kind of technology even existed, um, which, you know, for me is not proof. It's just another layer to the story you know it adds a little bit of color to a otherwise quite dry archaeological you know <laughs> very loose difficult to tie together um uh, story it actually pieces it together quite beautifully and i think actually successfully answers the question of you know could there have been this thing back then and i think absolutely after you know 
having studied it for seven, eight years, I could almost certainly say, yes, this is a lived reality. I don't claim to know exactly what it was like, but sure, you know. It kind of reminds me, you remember when we had Chris Tolworthy on talking about Atlantis, mm-hmm. and there was this sort of idea that anything before written history where we have written records is, is kind of devalued, sort of things like oral tradition that's been passed down and, and such, and these stories, myths, however you, you want to describe them. There seems to be this dividing line that as soon as we get written history, then all of a sudden we can take all this serious in. It's like... I mean, what do we know about people and writing history and who writes right. the history? It's like, why do we put so much weight in what people who were in charge were writing you right. know, 2,000 years ago? But we, we can completely disregard things like oral traditions from North American tribes or absolutely. Egypt or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I find it so interesting that, you know, <clears throat> when people, I mean, it's it's... What really was so interesting to me was to see, because, you know, I look at this book as like, it's really like five books crammed into one, you know, to me. Because, yeah, of course, it's a book on clairvoyant images of Atlantis, but it's also a history of, in this case, one of those five qualities would be, it's a study for the layperson of just what you just said, like how the historical profession works and how it cherry picks what it wants to fit its current historical timeline, you know, and for example, (laughs) today, you will be really hard pressed to find scientific American or national geographic, write a serious, objective, unbiased article, even suggesting the reality of, let's say, Atlantis or any prehistoric you know, civilization, you know, they have a hard enough time even giving Gobekli Tepe the place it deserves, which has already conclusively rewritten the whole hunter-gatherer BS story that we've all been force-fed for the past, you know, 50 years. But if you go back to 1877, for example, when the ship Challenger mapped or did soundings and discovered the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, they wrote an article, not as esoteric scientists, not as people who meditate with crystals, as hardcore oceanographers at the top of their profession who were selected to chart the mid-Atlantic region for militaries and governments of the world. And the first thing they said was, you know, that story that Plato was told by Solon actually now makes a lot more sense because multiple lines of evidence are converging, suggesting that Atlantis probably was exactly here because we read the dialogue and that's where the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is. They didn't say we found Atlantis. They just said, actually, if we're being objective, there is a large sunken landmass off the coast of Portugal, right where Plato said it was. That's quite interesting. But it's like somehow we've forgotten that. And, you know, now you're crazy if you tell people that the Mid-Atlantic Ridge exists. Like when people say, well, where is it? I always say, go to my website. Look at the top left picture. It's a picture of the ocean floors with all the water drained out of them. There's a giant goddamn continent in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. You don't have to really look that hard, you know? It's really not that difficult, you know, and I get emails all the time from people, 
that love to make it more complicated than it is. Oh, the Straits of Gibraltar are not the pillars of Hercules. He was actually talking, and it's like, bro, read the damn dialogue. Read it again. Because if the pillars of Hercules are the Straits of Gibraltar in every other time they're used in ancient Greek to describe that, but they just, nah, it's not this time. It's actually Malta or it's Sicily. Sicily, yeah. Or it's the island of Thera, and it's like, well, that's interesting because the island of Thera did have an eruption 8,000 years after the time Plato's describing it. Okay, he's not describing the Bronze Age. He's actually, again, if this is all made up, it's quite interesting that he picks the date 9600 BC when he's writing from 360 BC. That's a quite accurate guess if this is a fable because we know that that was the end of the Younger Dryas period and the beginning of the Holocene. So it's like somehow he knew that, or the Egyptians knew it, but they're not a creditable source. You know, the oldest culture that keeps records, they're, they're not really trustworthy. You know, a guy who, you know, got a degree from a liberal arts college who doesn't speak the language and, you know, has never done field work, that, that's a reliable authority because, you know, we all know nobody believes in Atlantis anymore. You know, and it's it's just quite interesting to see this this shift, which which is quite recent. You know, it's it's really to me in the last twenty five, maybe thirty years that this became like a silly topic. But until really the early nineties, this was not a silly topic. Almost most serious academics didn't discredit this kind of thing outright. Do you think you know? that's Do you think that's a backlash? Because you know, uh, fingerprints of the gods came out in what ninety four, ninety five, ninety five. 95 and, uh, or 96, yeah. I don't know, right. did da- uh, Von Daniken's book, uh, Charity of the Gods, that would have been earlier, I guess, wouldn't it? Maybe. Yeah, that was much earlier. 70s, I think that was I even think. like 78, 77, yeah. Yeah, but mm-hmm. there's obviously been a, a growth. Um, Charles Belitz did one in the 80s, which was very yes. popular. And I'm yes, just wondering whether, it, because these books have been so popular and they're not written by what you would call accredited historians or archaeologists that that's what's right. maybe forced this backlash in the last couple of decades yeah i think um you know to go through each of those absolutely i mean i think of course hancock is the the classic example you know he's a guy who was a travel journalist at the you know what was it the london uh economist something yeah you know and you know on his assignment in ethiopia decides to look for the Ark of the Covenant, and it's like, how dare you go off script? You know, you're supposed to be writing about, uh, you know, Mogadishu port or whatever. But it is quite interesting. Um, and he did write a great book on Mogadishu. But it's like, yeah, it's it's interesting that, you know, and it's it's always, it's quite funny to me because the people that, hold this quote-unquote authority like egyptologists it's like okay i don't consider myself an atlantologist i would never presume that you know i'm a historian you know that's that's what i was trained to do i have a master's degree in history i was a adjunct professor i'm just a curious person you know that likes to write and talk to people but i find it funny that you know, when somebody like me or 
Hancock or like you said, Charles Berlitz or other people outside of these specialized professions, like dares ask a question like, okay, well, how were the pyramids built? It's like you dare not ask that question. Okay. We don't know. We don't have a goddamn clue, but how dare you ask that question? You know, it's like, well, the burden of proof then is on you because to me, this idea that reality defaults to skepticism, which has become a new thing, yeah, is entirely ridiculous, and it's itself ideological. You know, it's like the the skeptics, as I say in the book, apparently have not read you know Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolution. They actually believe in objective reality. They don't believe paradigms, even scientific paradigms, are themselves the products of culture and socioeconomic conditions and that there is no such thing as purely objective science. And this is not a debatable point. Thomas Kuhn conclusively proved that in the seventies. So it's like, I find it funny that anybody that tries to advance the field, be it archeology, span ancient history, whatever is considered crazy now and it, it almost presumes like well then i guess we figured it all out then you know what's what why are we even talking then you must have an answer then but they still cannot answer basic questions you know and and to me it's like well then you don't have an answer and if we can answer those questions even if we have to use esoteric quote-unquote information that aligns with physical information or myths or linguistic similarities as i show in the book well, then, if it's based on evidence, then we're winning. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're not winning just because you don't want to hear it. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, Hancock has proven many times over. You know, they bitch and moan all they want. But it's like, well, where is your counter argument besides you're mad or he's a racist or he's <laughs> crazy or whatever the hell it is that week? It's like. Those are not sophisticated counter arguments. You know, you haven't written a debunking book that goes point through point the way he has written a book or many other people, you know, Berlitz or, you know, Daniken, Von Daniken and these people or whoever, you know. And so I don't even really engage with people unless they're going to engage with me on a level of respect, but also of professionalism. Like if, if you have a problem with and I haven't gotten any of this uh, except for one person, actually, and. <laughs> in britain of all places um who's mad at me you know tony is it you uh, <laughs> no. no yeah tony. It's, it's, tony, not, it's not tony in the chat is not it tony, tony <laughs> no. oh well, we, we know tony surely <laughs> how many tonys can there be in england <laughs> there's an old man that's very mad at me because i dare use esoteric sources and i don't believe that atlantis is in the mediterranean because it's not and there's no evidence and he wrote a book on it, and he's mad that my book's selling more copies than went to number one. <laughs> That's it. But it's fascinating because it's like, well, if you have a problem with me, then write a point-by-point -point refutation going through every source and show me where I'm wrong because I'll go back into Amazon KDP and I'll amend that and I'll give you credit for it, you know? But it's like, that's not what I got. I got ad hominem attack that you we all know how people feel about esoteric sources you know it's like well no we don't actually because we haven't pulled the entire world and then you know saying outright that 
archaeology categorically rejects the year 9600 BC for the reality of civilization. It's like, so the entire field of archaeology? Really, so Gobekli Tepe doesn't exist? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's just, it's very convenient that that discovery hasn't given more credibility to this 9,600 date Plato gives. It's like, we have an advanced observatory in Turkey that is at least 12,000 years old, maybe older, and has only been excavated, I think, what, 10% of it, of the temple complex. I think it might be five. I think it's five, yeah. And yeah, so Katahoya. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, so so we have that. That's cool because we have a physical thing that we can see and people can walk around it. But somehow it's impossible that like that level of sophistication or higher could have existed on an island off the coast of Portugal. Like, why is that impossible? I, I really it's it's really strange to me because even before I studied the subject, I wasn't strongly for or against it. I was just like, I don't know anything about it, and I'm going to go into this investigation just blind. You know, I'm going to actually see where this leads. And as I did the work, I would waver. I'd be like, this isn't a book. Wait, this is a book. This isn't a lead. This is a lead. This is a bad channeling source. This is a great channeling source. And let's standardize this and show people where you came to these conclusions instead of just saying, like my friend Rob Neeland, who's an actual archaeologist, says sometimes, you know, Michael, don't just tell people you had a girlfriend that had a past life in Atlantis. You know, they don't want to hear that. Uh, they want something a little more substantial than that. And I said, well, Rob, I never talked about my girlfriend with a past life in Atlantis. But I see what he's talking about because, you know, a lot of these esoteric type books, they don't use references. They don't cite sources. They yeah. just say etc so i i i tried to avoid that while at the same time using unconventional means to you know well, round the picture out you now we mentioned the sources um before we recording again i think i mentioned that personally i i wasn't familiar with edgar casey i, I was just i just knew the name and sort of a bit of the reputation surrounding him and mm. and uh, what time he was living in i knew that he was a famous clairvoyant and a healer of some repute um, so why don't yeah. you tell us a bit about him? Tell us about Edgar Casey. Yeah, he was a guy who, you know, he was born in the late 19th century in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. And around 1901, he lost his voice. He had a rare case. I think it was meningitis. And a friend told him, hey, you should go see this guy who's coming to town, who's a traveling uh, hypnotist. And they had a couple sessions. He got better was able to um, actually speak when he was under hypnosis. But then the once he came out of it, he lost his voice again. So that guy referred him to another hypnotist who actually cured Casey. And while he was curing him, he said, you know, you actually probably have this gift because I don't really have to tell you much. And, and you seem to be able to um, automatically, you know, put yourself in a hypnagogic state. And so this guy became his kind of little, you know, promoter around Hopkinsville. And that's how Casey discovered around the age of, I think, 24, 25, this ability. And it became so powerful that, I mean, because he was giving medical advice, he was healing people, he was giving remedies. 
that actually, you know, I include in the book, the people that came to visit him, they sent a psychiatrist from Harvard who, you know, was hell bent on debunking him and he couldn't. And then, you know, later I show a psychiatrist who, who was a student at the time, um, from the university of Chicago. And he interned with Casey the last couple of years of his life and, and documented everything he saw. And he said, you know, I could never understand this, but I had to believe it was real because I was watching this guy, you know, locate missing objects, locate mineral deposits, like to the inch of where he said, like, you're going to find silt if you drill here, then ore, then iron, then this. And he's like, I swear to God, the people went out there drilled and that's exactly what they found so it kind of shocked this guy who was an atheist hardcore materialist and during this time you know all these people started to see this uh pattern emerge where he would give past life readings and sometimes he'd take you back three four lives sometimes five and it seemed to be that the people that happened to be coming to him you know, whether it was karmically, they were drawn to him or whatever, all eventually, many of them, uh, 500 of his clients, roughly, or 500 readings, some were multiple readings with the same client, went back to this period called the Atlantean experience. And, you know, this was in the 20s and the 30s, mainly, that he gave the Atlantis readings when, you know, there had been books written on this, but it was not a widely popular topic. And the dates he was giving for some of the more conventional history were absolutely crazy to people who were even, you know, interested in Egyptology when he said conclusively the pyramid, the Great Pyramid of Giza was built in 10,490 BC and it took 100 years. It was built by magnetic levitation and it was built by the descendants of Atlantis who were fleeing the final destruction of their continent which had also had two more destructions, the first being in the year 50,722 BC. And it's like, people were just like looking at these transcripts, like, what are you talking about? You know, like these are incredible dates for a lay person in the 1930s, you know, um, now they then, didn't have much. Would, would he have been familiar with the works of Plato, Michael, do you think? According to his son, he never read Plato. Now, of course, that's impossible to confirm, you know, and he did have a near photographic memory in waking life. And wow, that's a that, rare gift, isn't it? Yeah, but it's not, even if he had read Plato, there was, I'll give you an example, because I thought about this myself. He could have read Plato. He could have read a lot of things. Could have read The Antediluvian World by Ignatius Donnelly, which was written in 1882, you know, that talked about a lot of theories of Atlantis and where it could be. But here's something I'll give you as a kind of uh, control. He said in 19, I want to say 32, he said, did you know, this is in a full hypnagogic trance. He said, did you know that at one time the Nile River, it used to be called the Nole River, and it actually flowed through Central Africa and emptied into the Atlantic Ocean on the Congo end of the country as it exists today. 
He said that in 1932 and probably somebody just filed it away like, yeah, whatever, buddy. (laughs) Well, in 1986, satellite and space shuttle imaging radar confirmed that that was true. That there is a giant river underground six feet under the sands of the Sahara Desert that probably had its origin where the Nile River is and it empties into the Atlantic Ocean on the Congo end of the country. Now, that's an incredibly good guess for an uneducated man on a couch in Virginia Beach in 1930. Now, this is one of about 20 other things he said that are nearly impossible to guess, you know, that I'll let people read the book to see. But, you know, those are things that really, to me, are significant, you know, let alone the other readings where I said, you know, you can go look one up yourself where somebody went, I believe, to uh, Bimini drilling for minerals in the 80s based on a Casey reading. And they said he was accurate to the inch on the core sample from a reading he gave in the 40s on what the mineral deposits would be like on this part of the island of Bimini. And they did a core sample. and They said it was exactly the strata was exactly what this reading we pulled from the archives was. How could that be? Well, obviously he's in touch with what he would call the Akashic records or, you know, on some level he could remote view in real time. You know, he was a kind of super viewer because he could go himself into hypnagogic trance and go back in time and accurately see things to a degree but he could also give contemporary remote viewing sessions in real time. And you could ask him questions, Q&A. And he had a 95% accuracy rate diagnosing, remote diagnosing medical conditions. That's a good point. Uh, most of these readings were remote, weren't they? There were people right into him. All of them. Yeah, like all- pretty much almost all of them. I mean, there were a handful where... Somebody would be like the mother of the child would be in the room with Casey, but almost all of them were remote, you know, so he wouldn't even know your name. Well, he would know your name, but he wouldn't know anything about your location, where you live, nothing. It would just be okay. Like a remote viewer gets a target, a number or a series of letters. And he could diagnose, you know, I show a couple in the book, third lumbar you know, is has a slight fissure on this side of the third vertical lumbar. And it's like, these weren't just random guesses because when the person went to the doctor, they said, who told you this? Because that's exactly what's wrong with you. And we missed it on your checkup. Like, did you see an expert? And they're like, no, I saw an old man on a couch in Virginia. <laughs> and, you know, and he went to jail for, twice, actually, because he was you know, considered to be practicing medicine without a license. Wow. Uh, this this is reminiscent of uh, the man uh, Reich, isn't it? Wilhelm Reich. That's how they, yeah. I think, that, I think that's mm. how they got him in the end. It, it is. And they stole his machine, you know, and the, what is it called? The um, cloud buster. The, uh, no, the, the orgone accumulator. No, the microscope that could see living blood. Oh. Oh, yeah. Blank him. Spectroscope, some some kind of, I forget what it's called. But yeah, but you know, and and I talk about that briefly, like, because you're right, this was the time when, 
you know, the Flexner report came out and the Rockefeller pharmaceutical complex started to get really going. And Casey was caught in the middle of that, you know, where they were shutting down not just him, but all holistic practitioners, chiropractic, yoga. It was all outlawed. You had to have a AMA license to do any of this stuff. Well, that's and an so that was a great uh uh, observation you made in the book about the the that's the american medical association is it and this that's is right. the sort of banning of anything other than allopathic medicine it, correct correct yeah and of course rockefeller built and bought that license like everybody that got a ama degree had to go through his version of medical school and he's an industrial manufacturing magnate so he has extra petroleum and toxic crap to get rid of. And so that's why most of those pharmaceuticals at the beginning were, you know, residue from his other industries was going in as filler and things like this. Um, and so, yeah, that was an interesting like side arc, you know, cause Casey's dream was to build this um, holistic hospital. You know, that's the only re- reason right. he ever he ever took money was to build this. And I think they started building it, but then uh, I think it was like the depression hit actually. And by the mid thirties, he had to abandon it. And, you know, he became super depressed and was just like, God, how can I not even accomplish this one thing when I'm like a miracle worker? And then he realized later in life, you know, look, there's other ways to, you know, help people. So I'm just going to do it from my home. And a lot of people think that's what killed him, really, was that at the end of his life, he was giving something like six readings a day in a state that a doctor who was watching him said was as near a coma as he could be, actually. So he would go into a coma six times, you know, from breakfast to dinner and pull people's life records or give them medical readings. And it it took a toll on him, you know, and. I think he died at 65 years old. So that was something I wanted to, well, two things I wanted to ask um, is what was the financial arrangement? Did he charge for every reading throughout his life? And also no. how many readings in total do do we think that he did uh, over 15? Yeah, he did 15,000 readings. Right. Over and what, several decades. Over 40 years, right. basically. Yeah. Over the course of about 40 years. Um, and he died in 1945, uh, January, I think 1945. And, um, yeah, I mean, occasionally he did ask, you know, some of his richer benefactors, um, cause again, he wasn't just being seen by average people. You're talking oh, about yeah. Harry, Harry Houdini came, Nikola Tesla got a reading from him. Woodrow Wilson got a reading. Henry Ford got a reading, you know? And I mean, so it wasn't just some quack. I mean, he was considered one of the you know, premier clairvoyants in the United States when this subject wasn't as ridiculed, you know? Um, it was going through a, a renaissance, if anything, because this is around yeah. the time of Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society. And right. Steiner is probably around that time as well, isn't he? He died, I believe, in... Um, when did Rudolf Steiner die? I believe in he was dead before before World War Two, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, he was. I think he yeah. died in the twenties yeah. or maybe the early thirties. I'd have to check that. But you know, Steiner was really active around 
the turn of the century. You know, some of his biggest lectures were like 1901, like in before World War One, and then after World War One, he got really active with the whole Ariman stuff and all that. But you know, again, it's it's funny because um, it wasn't just Casey. You know, Casey had a contemporary who was even in a weird way stranger than him. Um, I think his name was Osiewicki. He was a Polish guy who was, he actually died the same year Casey died, except he was machine gunned by um, a Nazi firing squad. But he was visited, just to confirm your point, you know, he was, according to uh, an eyewitness account that's very reliable, uh, one of the, I believe it was one of the Rothschilds had lost this extremely valuable collection of family papers and they couldn't find it. They sent spies, they sent private investigators. Well, somebody told them, look, there's this guy in Poland who can find anything and is a full vetted clairvoyant. And according to his wife, they were visited by a private plane. I think this was in the thirties. And the, one of the Rothschild barons appeared and said, were the papers, it was just a brief conversation. He said, were the papers stolen? And Osiwiki said, yes. He said, who stole them? He said, the wife of your butler. And they said, where are they? He said, they're still in London. That guy went back, found the damn papers, and then wrote this guy a blank check. So he got a blank check from the Rothschilds that he claimed he he just threw away. He said, I don't want your money. I'm just glad I could help some somebody. But, you know, it just shows you that, I mean, if the most powerful people in the world are going to a psychic in Poland or a psychic in the United States, then, you know, if they tell you it's BS, it's probably because it works. And, you know, they didn't want you to use these things because they're kind of like superpowers, you know? There's a, there's a famous quote somewhere. It, may, it might just be a meme, but it's something like millionaires don't go to astrolog- astrologers, but billionaires do. Yes, that is. A, comes, I've, I've heard from. that. Don't know where I've heard from. that's so funny. I've heard the same thing. Um, I don't know where the origin is either, but it's yeah, it's like like millionaires don't use astrology, but but billionaires do. Yeah. Or don't believe in astrology or something like that. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to um, touch on one of the other main focuses of, of your book, which is Frederick Oliver and the, the book that he wrote. I think it's important to talk oh. about him because he's. This is a crazy story when you start, because you, you quote, you know, good chunks of the story in the book and you're trying to yeah. put together in your head that this 17-year-old kid is writing this book. It's just, uh, it's pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, honestly, that was too weird for even me. I, I, I had a couple times where I really had to stop for a good six, seven months because um, that book was so personally kind of, I really can't explain it. I don't know if I even want to talk about it, but I had some just a few experiences with that book where I felt like this is so real. And it's almost like there were parts of the book where I felt like it was exactly describing my own life at the time. It was very weird. I don't really want to get into it, but yeah, to answer that question, um, you know, uh, what, how do you even begin? I mean, you have a 17 year old kid, living in Eureka, California, next to Mount Shasta, famous, you know, mysterious, sacred site. And, 
you know, in 1886 in the Wild West, who claims to come home one day and start automatically writing forwards and backwards, might I add, a 450-page Shakespearean script that mirrors Star Wars. The only problem is, you know, it's 100 years before that franchise was conceived. (laughs) But it's talking about being on a ship that can move through the air fast and go underwater and talking to a princess on a holographic projector, you know? while you're fighting basically the Sith and you're dealing with the Jedi, except you call them the Sons of Solitude and, you know, the Sons of Belial. But it's essentially Star Wars, but channeled by a 17-year-old kid who had no formal education. And it's set in Atlantis in the year 11,160 BC. So it's quite strange. It's not for everyone. Doesn't he describe some sort of handheld device that they all had as well? Yeah, he describes a cell phone that's holographic. He describes it, calls it a name, N A I M, like a mirror. Does he describe it as like a mirror? Yeah, he's. It's a handheld mirror. It's a black mirror that can holographically project (laughs) your friends. The only problem is he's a kid who lives. Yeah, the only problem is this thing here, this black mirror that's handheld. I know. yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, and I mean, where did he get this? Where did he get his theory of the sun? that he spends two full pages describing what the sun really is. Where did he get his theory on what cathodicity really is, what magnetism is, what... I mean, it's it's so weird that the first time I read it, I said, this has to have been like, where's the part of the book? I'm going to read it again so I could see like where Nikola Tesla wrote like, hey, just kidding, I wrote this. Right, because like, there's, there's I, like physics and engineering and all sorts in it. Yeah. I mean, I almost want to read a passage from it, you know, if I can. I don't I don't have it in front of me, but it's it's beyond the level. Like, there is no 17-year-old. Like, Einstein at 17 could not have written some of the passages from this. Nor Tesla. Like, nor Shakespeare. Like, there is no 17-year-old kid their rights at this level. It's impossible. Yeah. Unless he's the greatest writer in the English language. But then the question remains, well, he wrote this at 17. He died 16 years later at the age of 33. And his mom didn't publish the book until 1904. So if you had written something this crazy for sensationalism, you just put it in a drawer and you didn't share it with anybody. So there's no motivation for sensationalism. There's no motivation for one day I'll be the greatest undiscovered fiction writer. Like his mother had to take a bunch of notes and bring it to some, you know, publisher in 1904 that was like, what do you want me to do with this and pay them a lot of money to standardize it, figure out which page went where, because a lot of it was out of order and then release it to a very small group of you know, uh, local bookstores until it was later republished in like 1925 on mass. But again, it's like, what's the motive? If this is fake, which people, this is a great work of fiction. You go on Amazon, this is a great work of channeled fiction. It's like, once again, just like Plato, 
This is not fiction. Frederick Oliver specifically states that this is a true account of my friend Philos's life in Atlantis in the year 11,160 BC on the island of Poside. And this is how it begins. And what I tell people is, I only had maybe two moments where I damn near fell out of my chair or quit the project. And one of them was when he writes a, includes a, just casually in the middle of this book, there just is a blank page and then there's a map. And he says, this is the island of Poside. This is where I used to live. And I looked at it like, okay, like whatever. It's a triangular shape. Okay, cool. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Then you look at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And you turn that shape. You don't change the shape. You just tilt it. And you superimpose it where the Azores are today. And it's an exact fit. And the problem is that was not known until the 40s. When he wrote that book, there was one map of the Mid-Atlantic because they did soundings 10 years before, 10 years before that book came out. They did they took a sailing ship with steam power, perhaps, and used ropes to find out how deep it was. But they didn't know what the exact contours of the miles of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge looked like. There is no map. So when you look at a modern satellite map, and it's exactly the map he channeled and drew in 1886, again, that's when I was just creeped out because it's like, oh, my God, this is true. Like, even though you thought it was true... It is true, and therefore, you know, you got to sit down for a minute and, like, <laughs> take a break from all this shit because you're going to go crazy. Yeah. And that's what I did. I took about a year off, actually, after I found that map. I, I closed the project. I saved the file, and I just, you know, went about my life because it was creeping me out when I saw, you know, when I would, for fun, as a skeptic, cross-check Everything he said that I could, you know, get a data point on. If he said that, you know, there was, this is what South America looked like. I'd be like, yeah, right. No, it didn't. And then you, wait a minute. How, what? You know, or he'd say, uh, th this is what we called this thing. And you're like, okay, you're just making up words. And then you actually find an etymological, like logic in his own Atlantean language that he occasionally uses. And that's, again, I just got creeped out. And I shut it down. That was one of the most compelling parts of your book, actually, was the sort of etymol uh, etymological analysis, if that's even a phrase. When you're looking at sort of ancient Inca or Mexican, South America, Central American words and sort of similarities and analogs between those words and words that were in the Frederick Oliver book when he's describing so being weird. channeling Phylos. Was it Phylos of Atlantis? Yeah. 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 It's so weird. And exactly. I mean, it, it, he, he, th there are, for that to be a forgery, it's like, that's crazier than it just being true. If that makes sense. Yep. Um, because, because even if you consider, which I have, and I say in the book, let's just pretend that Nikola Tesla wrote that. Well, then the latest it could have gone to print 
with final editions was 1904. There's still no map of what the bottom of the Azores looked like in 1904. So that alone is incredibly bizarre. There's also very little knowledge at that time of this cataclysm that we now all but take for granted after the work of, you know, Hancock popularizing it and James Kennett with the nano diamonds and everything in 2008, this idea that there was a cataclysm around 10,000, 10,500 BC is now, you know, more palatable. But to say that in 1886, is quite uncommon to, to just arbitrarily pick a date like, yeah, this was my past life in 11,160 BC. You know what I mean? It's like, and then he says, and then the civilization lasted about another 800 years. And it's like, okay, well, that's bringing us almost exactly to the time when most people think this, this comet, the first of the fragments or whatever, this cataclysm began. And you look in the geological record, and there was something going on at that time. So it's like, again, how does a 17-year-old kid and a 65-year-old man, neither of whom have education, one is in a clairaudient waking automatic writing session that's like interfering with his school sessions and his parents are worried about him. And the other is an old man on a couch in Virginia. And they've never communicated. And yet they're saying the same thing. It's it's, it's in an age when nobody was communicating across those distances unless they absolutely had to or knew about each other. So it's like, it's very unusual, but there it is nonetheless. And so I really tried to, you know, bring these stories to people in a way that wasn't just silly or disrespectful, but to show, hey, you know, plug these into the other evidence and see where things line up. You mentioned uh, earlier that with Edgar Casey, there was he had an illness. Was it some sort of meningitis? Maybe that seemed to trigger his abilities, for lack of a better word. Is there a similar thing happening with Oliver? Is there like a documentary documented uh, event in his life that started this process? And has there been sort of any decent autobiographies uh, been written about him? No, in fact, I looked for almost uh, a whole month straight just on what you just said uh, there's only two pictures of him um i mean maybe there's more in <clears throat> in the national archive or something but probably not because <clears throat> photographs are still extremely rare unless you're a very you know wealthy person even in 1886 um but i did find a portrait of him as a kid and a portrait of him as a i think like a 25 year old and um i included one of them in the book but autobiographical information actually it's all in um the preface to his own book where he describes like i came out here from washington dc with my parents i never had a formal education i consider myself an atheist but i was raised protestant so that's really all we have to go on and uh i don't even think anybody knows what he died of he just is listed in i think los angeles as deceased in 1899 at the age of 33 you know so so again i i don't even know uh very little information on this kid but but what he says in that intro was just one day he started 
getting this feeling like somebody was talking to him, uh, not while he was asleep, like while he was just out uh, journaling or, you know, mining or going for a walk by Mount Shasta. And he said it started to interfere with, uh, like my parents would be talking to me like, Frederick, Frederick, dinner's ready. And he's like, "Uh, I'm channeling a book on Atlantis. Like I can't talk right now. (laughs) And he even admits, you know, in his like 19th century humor, you know, he's so humble, but he's like, you know, uh, like I, I did the best I could to like honor my, my mother and father who, you know, were justified in their skepticism, my occult preceptor who was in my head. And it's like, you know, but they, they just looked at him like, okay, my son is schizophrenic or something like that. And, it doesn't seem to be like hurting him. He's still a teenager. He, maybe he's just eccentric or he's like pretending he's hearing voices, but you know, we'll take a look and Oh, he's that's cute. He's writing like a, a fantasy novel. They probably thought, you know, but I guess after enough time went by, probably his mother or father actually read the thing and were like, like, what, what was that? Like, are you kidding me? You know, like the same way I read it and was just like, like what? Like I had heard about this book, but like most people, you hear about it or you read a summary of it, but you don't actually sit down and do what I I read that book seven times straight to see what the hell is really going on in here. And by the third time I figured it out. And by the fourth time, I started to be able to like really go deep into the chronology of what was going on and then corroborate that with you know, the other sources, even Plato, you know, um, and he fills in some things that, that Plato wasn't aware of. Like he has a name for the circular river. And I, I think I'm the first person in the world, maybe that, that ever noticed that where it's one word in a, you know, many thousand page book that people usually don't read. And he says, you know, we had a great time going around the circular Nomis river that circled the capital. You know, and he has even a name for the capital that Plato didn't have. You know, so you start to just take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you kind of overlay it and see, like, where does it line up? And, you know, as you mentioned at the um, beginning of the show, I don't say, uh, you know, if you buy this book, you'll find Atlantis. (laughs) It's not what I'm even trying to do. My goal was to say, look, this is the heavy lifting research I've done as as a professional historian who was just curious. And, you know, perhaps this will lead to more discussion of a topic that's that's really endless, you know, because if this was a civilization, as Edgar Casey says, that lasted 90,000 years. I mean, what what do you, what are you going to find that that's conclusive of anything, you know, like Edgar Casey's son once said famously, he said, look, if you fast forward to the year 14,000 after a cataclysm has destroyed the United States, tidal waves and the whole United States is underwater and you fast forward to the year 14,000, And a guy comes along and drills a four inch hole in the bottom of the ocean over New York. Are you, are you going to find Manhattan? Are you going to find 
the United Center where Beyonce played in Chicago? Are you going to know <laughs> anything about our culture that's like not even stored in physical records anymore? It's all just in hard drives that yeah. are software contingent or we don't even build megalithic architecture, you know? So probably the only thing that would be left would be like the Hoover Dam, you know, which is like one of our few megalithic type structures. But like the Empire State Building wouldn't be there. There'd be zero evidence of this discussion or the possibility that we had holographic mirrors and we could talk across oceans. It's like, so why is it hard to think that if you go that same distance backwards, if you want to look at it just for argument's sake in a linear fashion, that that couldn't have been the case and then been destroyed. And then like, what are you going to find? You're not going to find a Atlantean iPhone 10, but you are going to find, you know, megalithic architecture, linguistic links, archaeological evidence that that doesn't add up, you know? And so it's almost like I get annoyed when people, you know, particularly with this, the, the new flavor of the week, you know, the eye of the Sahara, I get tired of this. Let's find, let's just take that for example, just as a baseline. I'm not saying that was not possibly an Atlantean city. It could have been, it could have been a natural formation. That's irrelevant. It just shows me that people don't even know what the hell they're looking for because it's like, just in Plato's dialogue, he's describing an enormous island, probably one and a half times the size of Spain, off the coast of Portugal, in front of the Straits of Gibraltar, that also had neighboring islands and a dominion that extended to the North American continent, which somehow he was aware of yeah. in 360 BC. The opposite continent, he called The it, opposite continent. Yeah. And that this empire also had dominion all through the Mediterranean up to Egypt. So when people are like, look at this circular city, it's like the circular city was in the capital. It wasn't Atlantis. It's like if you found the, I don't know, like uh, Central Park, and it's like, we found the United States. It's like, no, you found Central Park in New York in the country within the empire of United States in 2023, you know? So I think people should just start using more precise language. Like I'm not, I'm neutral on the reshot structure. You know, I look at the eye of the Sahara. I know, you know, Jimmy Corsetti and people like that are there. They've made a career. Like they've gone on Joe Rogan. I found it. I found it. And I found a Roman map and look, and it's like, look, that's a very viable do your research. Like it's a strange structure, regardless if it's natural or uh, human made. But to say that that's Atlantis, it's just kind of like, what are you talking about? Atlantis was a global culture, according to Plato and all the evidence from Edgar Casey. you know? Yeah. It, it wasn't a circular city that you know, was the most powerful circular city in the world. And once you find that, that's and the just stayed the there. It just, they were just happy just staying there in that couple of square, right. couple of square miles. Little, so they, wouldn't, know, I mean, they wouldn't want to, and I, you know, take over anywhere else or anything like that. That's not anything to do with human nature, is it? Exactly. And it's just, it's so funny to me because it's like, 
I don't think they've read the dialogue. You know, because when people even say, like, well, what are you talking? What did Egypt have to do with Atlantis? It's like, did you read the dialogue? Who the fuck told Plato the story? It wasn't another Greek person. It was the Egyptians telling Solon who told Plato. And then in that story, they talk about a global cataclysm where a comet burns up everything on Earth. And again, it's like, how did they know that in 360 BC? And then they said the date that happened was 9006. It's like, so they're describing an event that many cultures around the world have described around that same time, you know? And I think it's, uh, it's disingenuous and it's insulting to these otherwise, you know, people we consider geniuses, you know? Uh, we would never say that anything else Plato said is BS and made up. It's like, he is considered one of the great geniuses of Western philosophy. And yet, eh, he's wrong there. Yeah. And so to me, that says more about the, you know, the people looking at it. Um, because I'm fully prepared to, if somebody can refute anything, and I really mean this, like it makes my investigation better because I'm not invested in finding this thing because it's not something you're gonna find. You know, it's just a, it's like saying, well, when are we going to find the Roman Empire? How come we never found it? Like you keep talking about the Roman, where is it? It's like, well, there's the Colosseum. It's like, no, no, no. But where's this, where's the Roman Empire? <laughs> yeah. It's, an it's like, what are you talking? About? <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, we can't even find Alexander the Great's tomb. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, think about that. There is an argument. I, I don't believe it, but there are people who argue that the, the, the evidence for the existence of Alexander isn't that strong. I tend to disagree, but people make that argument, you know, because we sure. don't have a body. Right, right. And, uh, you know, and I mean, don't even get me started on. I won't even I won't insult your audience. I won't take it to Netflix, Cleopatra. Oh, we won't go there. Oh, fuck. But but um, we'll, we'll save that for part two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want I, I'm waiting for the, the Idris Elba as alexander that's going to be the next one they're going to do probably but you know i think um hey as long as it's not a documentary i'm fine with it but don't call it a and documentary that's, and that's that's the thing that's exactly the point that i think is absurd it's like you're you're free to use a chinese woman to play cleopatra if you like but that's not a documentary and the egyptian government has every right to be like Please find somebody that's closer to Ptolemaic Cleopatra, please. You know, that would be nice. But again, it's just, um, you know, that's okay. But but uh, how dare you look for Atlantis, you know? Um, but, you know, I, I think it's just uh, like, like you said, you know, we debate things that are much more contemporary, you know, and we don't have very, I mean, even to take the case of Alexander just briefly, you know, the best account of him from Ptolemy himself, you know, Cleopatra's great, 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 great granddaddy. That was lost. That was lost in the Library, Library of Alexandria. Of yeah. Right. So that was a, supposed to be the greatest account firsthand from his companion in the cavalry. We don't even have that. So I think it was what Arion, 
that wrote the definitive um, history of Alexander, but that was written in Roman times, yeah. like 400 years later. So, I mean, it's not he was not a firsthand account of that time period. He was going off Ptolemy's records that we can't see. So it, it's it's all very, it's much looser than people think, but I think it's like you said, it's like we get to a point where, well, that's good enough. So we'll roll with that, <laughs> you know, but with a topic like this, I think people are less averse or they're more averse because whether or not Alexander looked like this or did that or won Galgamela with this tactic, it doesn't change the fundamental kind of course that we are comfortable with, which is that, you know, people were primitive and we have iPhones and we're the best. The Atlantis <laughs> story is a humbling story because it's like not only were we much more advanced, you know, in many ways, technologically, spiritually, but that in Casey's story, we blew ourselves up twice. And then the comet came in and finished off the, the world. Yeah. yeah. And that's legitimately terrifying, yeah. you know? So I, I understand. I understand. I think that's the main obstacle is, is psychological and, and human and academic arrogance not the lack of evidence you know cool well michael we've blown over an hour already i don't know where the time goes but um any anything you want to say before we go before we play ourselves out no i just appreciate i hope uh hope i haven't offended too many people um, <laughs> i doubt it no no but you know i try to read my hosts and you guys seem, you know, pretty cool. Unoffendable. So. <laughs> yeah. You seem like nice people that aren't, you know, full of shit. So I try to match that myself, oh. but no, I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I, I'm glad that, uh, you know, of all the things, and I don't even look at it like as a, like, I mean, that sounds very rude of all the compliments you could have given me. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean that. But of all the things that you could have said about the book, like I like this or I thought this was cool or I didn't, what you said actually, um, that's the one personally that that I I think makes me feel the best. It is not it is not that uh, I love the pictures or I loved your writing or whatever. It's like I like that you let me make up my own mind. I thought that that's really at the end of the day what my goal was and uh that's so cool that you you felt that way that's really nice no problem and i think mm. it'll push people on to do more research as well it's like i want to get that frederick oliver book and read it now you know off the back of reading oh the accounts in in your work so yeah don't been... take my word for it read that book yeah, I want and, it, yeah you know read it and you know you know, have a nervous breakdown, you know, have a friend on emergency dial when you're reading that one. Not me. Um, <laughs> well, well, Michael, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure. The links are in the show notes, as always, if you want to get a copy mm. of the book or uh, visit Michael's website, michaellaflem.com. Yeah, thank um, you so much. Stay on the line for us for one minute while we play ourselves out, Michael. And uh, the rest of you in YouTube land will be back in mm, 10, 15 minutes for part two, do some news and some yeah. wacky stuff. Nice. All right. Cheers, Bye. Michael. Okay. Thanks, Michael. See you soon. Hey, take care, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 <laughs>
see my horrific wind. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right then, we're back. The dwarf, the cripple, and Captain Pickles. <laughs> Captain Pickles. Nice. Did you, did, you, did you clock who that was? It was Grimerica, wasn't it? The dwarf, the cripple, and Captain Pickles. It's Gary. Gary, Nerdrotic. Oh, Nerdrotic. Oh, right. Okay. Previous guest. Captain Pickles. Yeah, you know, we rub shoulders with internet celebrities Some these people. days, don't we? <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that was our chat with Michael LaFlem, author of Visions of Atlantis. Yes. Gets my seal, my seal and my stamp of approval. I've yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it. Interesting book. Very good. Just gets my seal. I'm interested in that. Um, what's his name? Cade Six. Casey. Edgar Casey. Edgar Casey. Edgar Casey sounds interesting, but the the boy who wrote Star Wars. Oh, yeah, that as well. Um, Next to a Mountain also sounds interesting. I would be interested to find out who's automatic writing now so we can get in with them. Uh, he's you already been on the show like the three is. times. <laughs> oh, Com- yes. Oh. I'm not reading 400 billion words to, <laughs> to, to find out where the, where the where, bodies are buried. Where <laughs> Right, uh, links in the show notes, as always, uh, for uh, Michael's book. Mm. Right, shall we move on? Should we do some headlines? It'd oh, be rude yes. not to, wouldn't it? Right. This is three, I think, this week. Three Show me what you got. Capital letters, a big news story. Headlines of the week. Watch! Man uses his pet python as a weapon during street fight in Canada. Never Are bring you... a snake to a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, a video is going crazy viral on social media showing a man using his pet python as a weapon to attack another during a fight in Canada's Toronto, according to CBC, that's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Thank you. Uh, the bizarre incident happened on Wednesday at 11.50pm in the Dundas Street West and Manning Avenue area. Let's see it. I've blown it up for you. Not the snake, because of the video. What the hell? Get on the ground! Now! Get on the ground! That's a real get snake. On the ground! Get on the ground! Is it not dead? I think it's dead. <laughs> Is it a dead snake? The snake slithers away. No, it doesn't. The video shows a man swinging his pet snake and using it to strike a person in the middle of the street. The victim tries to defend himself, but the man continues to thrash him with the snake. Seconds later, a Toronto police vehicle pulls up and officers break up the fight and make the men lie down on the ground. Meanwhile, the snake is seen slithering away. In a statement released Saturday, police said they received a call about a man threatening people with a python and officers were dispatched to the area. Quote, there was a, f- <laughs> there was a physical altercation, eh? And the man, and the man <laughs> used the python, <laughs> the python to attack the victim. What? <laughs> <laughs> Police said in a news release. The Toronto resident identified as Lorenio Avila, 45, was arrested and has been charged with assault with a weapon and causing unnecessary pain or suffering to an animal. Yeah, cruel bastard. He's been remanded in custody. Assault with a deadly animal. That's uh, horrific, that, isn't it? Throw him in a snake pit. <laughs> there should be more ironic punishments, I think, for criminals. Mm. Maybe. I don't know. I've not thought that through. I'll <laughs> write it down. <laughs> what would you do? Well, throw him in a snake pit. 
for that. Seems like a bit obvious. Indiana Jones style. Yeah, Indiana Jones style, yeah. Yeah. And if he does it again, then he has to open the Ark of the Covenant and have his <laughs> eyes melted out. What about maybe a Flash Gordon-esque, putting your hand in a hole <gasps> yeah. and then getting bit by that scorpion that makes you, your blood turn green and you die. Oh, oh the thing! The thing has me! It was terrifying, that scene, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Timothy Dalton don't give zero fucks, though. Straight in. Yeah. Grinning while he's doing it. He Mm. loves it. Yeah. Oh, well. And that's what got him the role of... Bond. (laughs) James Bond. (laughs) (laughs) Was there... Was... was, Which Bond film was it? The Living Daylights. Was that post-Flash Gordon? You reckon? Uh, Yeah, it was late 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, he was quite... Quite advanced in years, I think, when he... He did that it's a Bond film. The second one is horrific. Is it? It's, yeah. It's like, uh, it's about a Miami cocaine gang or something, isn't Live it? Live and let die. The That's uh, the... Is that the first one? Oh. Uh, oh. A view, a view to a kill. It's called? Al Pacino's. No, uh, it's from New York. It's from New York? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The guy it, from The Mask, uh, you mean? Yeah. I can't remember his name. Very famous actor... <laughs> strange speech patterns. Yeah, he was, wasn't he? And he he got the he turned into the evil mask. Who is it? I don't know his name. No I don't know. He's famous. He's in lots of films. He's the baddie in, in all Whoa. the films. Uh, Whoa. <laughs> other films. Other films. He's been a baddie in. Just the mask and James Bond. He weren't in the mask. Uh. He was a baddie in the mask. The person I'm thinking about. No, I'm thinking about someone else, a really famous actor. Are you talking about Christopher Walken? <laughs> it's the Walken man, yeah. Yeah, but that's that's not the right Bond film. Because that was uh, the one after Sean Connery. Right, okay. Um, <coughs> who is the saint? Uh, Moore. Roger Moore. Roger Moore, yeah. Okay, move on. There we go. Next headline. New York to track residents' food purchases and place caps on meat. Going to so, put caps on meat? <laughs> yeah, meat caps. Baseball caps. Served by public institutions. Um, New York City will begin tracking the carbon footprint of household food consumption and putting caps on how much red meat can be served in public institutions as part of a sweeping initiative to achieve a 33% reduction in carbon <laughs> emissions from food by 2030. Mayor Eric Adams and representatives from the Mayor's Office of Food Policy and Mayor's Office for Climate Environmental Justice. This is a real thing. (coughs) This is a real quango. The Mayor's Office for Food Policy and Mayor's Office of Climate Environmental Justice announced the new programmes last month at a Brooklyn culinary centre run by NYC Health and Hospitals, the city's public healthcare system. Just before Earth Day, this was announced. At the event, the Mayor's Office of Climate Environmental Justice shared a new chart to be included in the city's annual greenhouse gas inventory that publicly tracks the carbon footprint created by household food consumption. The city already produced emissions data for energy use, transportation and waste as part of the annual inventory, but the addition of household food consumption data is part of a partnership that London and New York launched with American Express. So that's how they track it. We've already heard about car- carbon credit cards, haven't we? That will uh, cut you off when you you make a certain hit a certain threshold of uh, carbon intensive purchases, for example. 
Uh, yeah, so the uh, partnership that London and New York launched with American Express, C40 Cities, and Eco Data Lab. <laughs> Commissioner Rohit Agarwala from the New York City Department of Environmental Protection announced at the event. Agarwala, who founded Google Smart City. Never heard of it. Oh, you will. <laughs> you will. This time you want to try and drive into Google? a city. <laughs> Google Smart City subsidiary Sidewalk Labs celebrated the expanded data collection as forging, quote, a new standard for what cities have to do and a new way to shape policy. Wow. It goes on for ages. It's a long story. Link in the show notes of the podcast. As well, always. I support anything that will make me eat 33% less of anything. <laughs> I could do with it. I'm pretty sure eating meat and vegetables is quite good for you. What? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, they would disagree, you see. Um, Adams, Mayor Adams, mm-hmm. who's the mayor of New York, a vegan who, according to a whistleblower, also eats fish, <laughs> credits his plant-based diet for his recovery from diabetes. Mm-hmm. He is the author of Healthy at Last, a plant-based approach to preventing and reversing diabetes and other chronic illnesses, a vegan cookbook. Um, mm. Adams claims that changing New Yorkers' eating habits will have both climate and health benefits. He said, We already know that plant-powered diet is better for your physical and mental health, and I am living proof of that. But the reality is that thanks to this new inventory, we're finding out it's better for the planet. So you're going to get better, and the planet's going to get better once you go vegan. It's a win-win. Lose, 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 win, win, lose. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It's fucking retarded. Are you retarded? Unbesmegging leaveable. Unbesmegging leaveable. Yeah. We'll see. Let's uh, sure. get out of the cities, man. That's not where you want to be, is it? I don't like cities. No, I don't. It's like um, David was saying last week when he was living in London, how it affected him, like mm. the pace of the life and mm. all that shit. Yeah, fuck that shit, that noise. <laughs> we just want it to stop. Former students sent seemingly used condoms and handwritten letters in the mail. Oh, my God! Got a report here. This is from Dan Ander. Uh, Condom mail, that'll be it. Dozens of women have been left traumatised after receiving graphic handwritten letters in the mail containing used condoms. Police say around 100 letters were sent out to homes across Melbourne's southeast and eastern suburbs over the past three months to 65 women in total. Many have received multiple letters and say it's left them distressed and disturbed. The victims all graduated from the same Bayside Catholic Girls College in 1999, leading police to believe they've been specifically targeted. Police are now conducting forensic analysis and working with Australia Post to try to pinpoint who is behind the vile mail. Hang on a minute. So they all graduated from a Catholic high school. Catholic girls' college, I think it said. In 1999. Yeah, so about the same age as us. That's a a hell of a synchronicity. How do you mean? Well, we all graduated from a Catholic high school in 1999. (laughs) Catholic girls' high school. Yeah. Well, you did. Me and Phil graduated from the bro school. (laughs) Based Sigma chat. Yeah, we're just total giga chats, aren't we? Yeah. (laughs) Sigma. Sigma, gamma, giga chats. Full on monk mode Sigma chats. Um, So, yeah, so 65 women from this graduating year 
have all received. You went Christopher Walken then as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sixty-five girls. Whoa. From the same year, received the condoms in the mail with a handwritten letter. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, it's quite it's it's quite right. an effort isn't it, to muster sixty-five wanks. I could do one hundred and sixty-five. <laughs> In a day. <laughs> well, what you can do? Well, the you... thing is, what you do, you call between the devil, devil and the rock in a wank place. place. Yeah, exactly. You've got to fill them. Got to fill them letters. Yeah, it's the handwritten letters. Letters are going to be the problem. I think. Yeah. Sign, seal, deliver. My cheers. Gross. It's coming. It's coming for you. It's coming in your ears. You better hope. <laughs> coming in the mail. It's coming in the mail. So oh, I mean, God. you better hope that he he. I don't want to assume his gender, but he... <laughs> I think it's pretty safe. I think it's pretty safe that this weirdo's a male. That, uh... <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he or she, um... Doesn't get pulled over and... For a DUI and... A DNA get, sample. Yeah, taken. gets a DNA sample. Oh, well... Yeah, he must be confident that he's... DNA isn't on a record. Seemingly. And he's never, you know, used a sperm bank or something it like might that. Yeah. Not be jazz, but I mean, the sentiment is clear. It'd be, it'd be funny, wouldn't it? You know, if for like Christmas, his girlfriend or wife or whatever, um, oh, I've secretly taken a swab of your DNA <laughs> and put it into Ancestry.com. That's how they get him, innit? Yeah, That's how they always, get these serial killers. Always get him on there. I was wondering, oh, is uh Condoms, used condoms, mm-hmm. and it was a Catholic girls' college, 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 college. So uh, yeah, I wonder if it is something. If that's a component, it's like uh, a fuck you to the Catholic to the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah, I'm using contraception. <laughs> I'm having posh wanks left, right, and centre. I'm sending it to Catholic girls. <laughs> so weird. So much effort. It's bizarre, isn't it? Over yeah. a three month period. So. 65 in... Th- oh, I think they said it was over 100 sent to 65 girls. So that's that's one a day, roughly, isn't it? Yeah. Keep, yep. Keeps the doctor away. <laughs> He's just cleaning the pipes. He's like, what am I, what am I, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this, mate? What eh? <laughs> I'll, post, I'll post it to some random... Oh, I know what's happened. What? The chi. <laughs> what? What about it? I've, I've sent the chi to him by accident, haven't I? All the prostate chi. Right. Oh, and, he's, and he's had to use it. Oh, it's like an, he had to blow the emergency valve. Yeah. Splooge oh, everywhere. I had to have 100 wanks and send it to <laughs> 65 of my ex-schoolmates. I was watching one of the reports and they interviewed uh, like the police chief of the area and he was saying, you know, one of the theories, hypotheses, working hypotheses, is that the guy found a yearbook with their addresses in. Maybe that's a thing in Australian yearbooks. Right. And that, I was thinking, well, how come, why are these girls still living in the same yeah. place? Yeah, when same they graduated side. in 99. I think there's more to it than that. Yeah. It's very strange. It's quite seven-ish, isn't it? What's that's, in the box? That's a good point, yeah. actually, <laughs> isn't it? That, of that would take uh, potentially a lot of work to figure out 65 different addresses. It's disturbing, isn't it? Yeah. Something's, Yeah. Concerning, I would say. Dirty bastard. Yeah. Yeah. Would you, would you do it? Just no. for a laugh? Just one, like, not a hundred. I mean, I just don't have the interest 
I mean, anything to go to the extent of researching 65 of my ex um, schoolmates' addresses, to be honest with you. It's not something that I have the time or the inclination to do. Too self-critical. I won't be able to write the letter. <laughs> no, again. <laughs> what you'd be disappointed with? The prose. The prose, <laughs> all right. Not the, the, not the volume of the vo- seed. No, no. <laughs> Housekeeping. God, that's disgusting. Housekeeping. This is a value for value podcast. If you find this podcast valuable, please consider returning some value. Uh, my favourite way of returning value, as always, every week, is word of mouth. Sending people links. Uh, in your Twitter, your Facebook groups, your Discord servers, your Element servers, your uh, Reddit, Pulse, whatever. You know, throwing CDs of this podcast like Ninja Stars or taping USB sticks to your fingers and gouge, gouge his eyes, gouging people's eyes with them. Yeah, if you work in a tattoo parlor, just put a link on underneath <laughs> underneath your latest art. QR code. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, stab him in. I've actually I got the uh, clip actually of because of, I referenced the, the gouge the eyes a couple of weeks ago. I don't know. I felt that people maybe didn't understand, and so I'm going to educate you. This is um, from a red letter media video. I think it's best of the worst, volume twenty four. And uh, this is a clip from. I don't know if you call it an infomercial, like um, almost like a self help type video. Um, presented by Detective Stanford Strong, retired. And it's all about personal safety. Mm. So, like, how to stop yourself getting carjacked. Mm. What to do if you get carjacked. Yeah. How to react and whatnot. So I've just got this little clip. Break the wrist, walk away. <laughs> <laughs> There's one last chance you have, though. You're being dragged into the tree line or around behind a building or or this woman right here at gunpoint in the car as a passenger. And that last chance is to gouge his eyes. I didn't say poke. I didn't say jab. I said gouge his eyes. Gouge his eyes. That's very cool. Lovely. Gouge his eyes. Gouge his eyes. He's gone full Spider-Man there, though, hasn't he? Yeah. How many eyes do these guys have? Oh, and so I was in tears when I watched that video. There's so much. He's such a great performer, that guy. Stanford Strong. There's one <laughs> bit. The screen's all over his set, that weird 90s set. Mm. And the proper, um, what would you, what do you call them? Rear projection TVs, the tube TVs. Uh, you know, everything's flat now, but mm. TVs used to be massive. With the valves. To, yeah, used to be massive at the back. And he keeps pointing at the screens. And every time he hits a screen... To, to bring up the next video, it makes a little punk, 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 punk. <laughs> so it's great. Good nice. watch. I'll pull a link in the show notes. If My you, favorite. If, if you're not way. watching Red Light oh. Media, you, you really <laughs> should be. Go on. I was just going to say my my favorite way to uh, engage is to um, leave us a review. Oh, and tell us about that review so we can read it out on air. Right. Okay. That's new. <laughs> I thought I'd mix it up a bit. That's new. <laughs> you weren't expecting that, right? No. Not at all. I yeah. mean, I like it when people join the Element server. That is good. <clears throat> I think um, we've got a couple of new members tonight. Really? Well, well, possibly. Oh, right. Okay. Remember to add yourself to every single room. It's a bit funky to get going. And then once you're in, you're in. Ask someone if you're not sure. 
Element is like the hub. It, it's what used to be Discord, but we're not allowed to Discord anymore. So we mm. have an Element server where you yeah. can uh, send us all sorts of clips and news articles. Yep. Show artwork. Oh, yeah. Don't have any show artwork this week. <laughs> oh. So I knocked this one up. Was it? Michael oh. LaFlem, 281. Powerful. That's that like, other guy? That's Edgar like Casey there. The sleeping yeah, prophet. face. Sleeping prophet there on the left. Um, sign up for the newsletter. The Rumspringer. Comes mm. out at the beginning of every month. Yep. You get... Uh, what are you laughing at? Fucking Sam in the, in the chat. What's Sam? Ben's Talking bottom tickler. Oh, bottom tickler. <laughs> How's that work? I'll tell you later. Okay. Show me. <laughs> Demonstra- demonstrate. Demonstrate. Uh, so yeah, sign up for the newsletter. Link in the show notes for that. You get um, a preview of the month's guests. We're booked up into June and some in July as well now. 2027. <laughs> and uh, you get a discount from the merch store every month as well if you want to buy some merch. Oh, that's a segue, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Anyone want to talk about the merch <laughs> ah! store? So you can get your um, you know, your hoodies, your T-shirts, your bacon nuts, mugs. That fine T-shirt. That's beautiful. Some hefty testes. Look at the size of those testicles. Test, test, test. Mug form. Each is bigger than a man's head. (laughs) Yeah. um, You could even get yourself a literally the communistic hoodie. That's literally a communist hoodie. Yeah. Three weeks to flatten the earth How much is a literally a communist hoodie, Phil? I don't know. It's in that £33. (laughs) These prices are not correct. Oh. I don't think. This is an old screenshot from ages ago. Do we follow a numerological pricing system? Numerolo- no, right, like a, an esoteric yes. pricing system. No. Everything is £432. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. has to be. Yeah, go buy some merch. Link in the show notes for the merch store. You can support us that way and get something to keep as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it helps. Uh, what did we say? Keep the shit show going? Yeah. Uh, you can send us focus chi requests. Um, you know, if your chi is depleted, um, you know, you can put a request in. You know, if, you've got, if you're in a funk, if you have an exam coming up, um, if you've run over a squirrel, um, those kinds of things, okay. then you can always request some chi and we will replenish your chi. Don't then send out that chi jizz in condoms no. No, no, no. to your ex-classmates. You keep it to yourself. Keep the jizz well, Reabsorbed. In a... I think you're meant to. That's how you fucking ascend, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's how yeah. you get your, your chakras and your, you know, in your spinal fluid and shit. Fucking start enlarging that pineal gland. Exactly. Um... That crust off it. Um... Birthday requests and guest suggestions are always good. Uh, yeah. Smash the like button. Hit the share. Um, yeah, ring the bell. Ring that bell. Um, and then toss us a coin. Toss a coin yep. to if your you go Witcher, to uh, beyondthesinquisition.com or look in the show notes, you'll find a PayPal button there or a PayPal link. You can give us a one-off donation or sign up for a monthly recurring su- sustaining donation. Only you fuckers out there can, can save Plotland. Because we know good. what we're doing, don't we? Yeah. They know what they're doing, Leia. Yeah. 
All right, then. On that note, should we thank the producers? Uh, like, this is the whole concept, is you become a producer of the show by doing all these things mm. and uh, helping us grow. This is crowdsourced, crowd-produced, and all the rest of it. So let's thank them, producers, for episode 281. We have... Not that one. We have... Uh, where is it? Helen, Alaya, and Mark. Thank you. You're so amazing, like Phil Schofield. <laughs> they are. Yeah. <laughs> so amazing in there. How the worm has turned. <laughs> Love and... Literally. The best mate. Oh, rum boy, respect me. <laughs> Willie G. It's time to big up the man Dems. The dwarfs, the currants, the Greek, the doctor of thugonomics. The homophobe, the wings, the giant fucking lenses. Da, da, da. The chest feeding, communist. The, the base sigma chat. The chunks. The baby penis inner asshole. These clockwork clowns. Chungus never seems so sus. The dime bar. The number 11. The bee gang on the bus. The blind man. The big chungus. The cripple and the mother of... Money bickering! From hell. <laughs> Are you retarded? So sus, so sus. He vents to electrical. I don't get it, never will. Thanks for your support for another week. Yes. Really appreciate it. Are you retarded? Share these great fellas all over social media if you're not retarded. Well said, Sam. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Right. Appreciate. Yeah. Appreciate you. Gosh, I'm sort of at sixes and seven. I've got a message from um, Mark, Mark Anthony Wyatt on uh, Instagram, our previous guest of, of several times. Yeah. Uh, yes. Author of... Um... The Knockers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the Spirit of Cornwall, Volume One and Two, which I've read, which uh, I, I like uh, Mike's books. Mm. Very, I don't know, homely. Right, okay. You know, there's a lot of his personalities and his humour and stuff is in his right. And uh, he was talking about, um, he was listening to last, was it last week? David Alkinson, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the Tulsa King. Oh, <laughs> do you remember the Tulsa King? <laughs> How can we forget? Oh, fuck, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, from Mark. Um, and during the David Elkinson episode, I've read one of his books. Interesting stuff. As for the toe-sucking, <laughs> it was probably the next bloke next door who ordered it. Ah. Uh, and it got me thinking. Wrong room. I think Mark is onto it. The guy went to the wrong room. Mm. The toe-sucker went to the wrong room. Yeah, probably. Because it just yeah. takes an unthinkable amount of stones <laughs> to go into an occupied hotel room in the middle of the night and start sucking a random person's toe. You yeah. should be expecting to get GBH into the middle of next week. Maybe that's where he won. So I toe. think it's mistaken identity. I think Could he's be. gone to the wrong room. Could be. Yeah, that's my. I think. Uh, I think Mark's nailed it. Yeah, I think you're right. Gouge his eyes. Gouge his eyes. I mean. Yeah, that's the the final throw of the dice, isn't it? Gouge his eyes. You know, I'm gonna have to find it now. Gouge his eyes. Yeah, get his, his get your eyes. foot out of his mouth, and then gouge his eyes. Gouge his eyes <laughs> with your toes. <laughs> yeah, you could use your toes, <laughs> didn't you? Swift kick to the cornea. <laughs> yeah. 
We were talking about um, pyrite the other week. Phil's gold. Phil Scold. Phil Scold. Not Phil Scold. We'll get to Phil Scold shortly. <laughs> Phil's gold. Right. Which is fake gold, right? Yeah. And uh, wheels. A, a liar sent us this video of this is genuine fool's gold as it comes out of the frigging earth. Check this shit out. Crystalline. What? It's nice, isn't it? In cube form. I used to have some of that, you know. You could buy it in gift shops. So there's this video and it's got pieces of rock with these perfect pyrite cubes in them. This is bizarre. So... <laughs> Yeah, I'm very confused now. That's how it's sometimes found. Look, we've got interlocking cubes there. I suppose you know the... Oh, look at that one. That it's floating. Salt. It's crystalline, isn't it? So it grows weirdly. Look at that one. Kapow! Like perfect edges. You can make... Um, I think it's bismuth crystals on a hove... A hove? A hob that look like that. And you pull them out and they're, they're pretty pretty cool. Mental, isn't it? Yeah, because you don't you don't think of nature created perfect cubes, but no. again, it's a matter of perspective. Oh. It's, it's, ah, rel- it's relative. Are you to us. The pyramids just grew out of the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, if you were a microscopic or- organism, a lot more things would look cube. Wow! Cubish. Shit, that's amazing. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Yes, it's, it would. It's because it's so big relative to us that it's interesting that nature's made these relatively large cubes. Yes. It's all cubes, isn't it? It's cubes go, all the way down. If you go small enough, <laughs> get, to, get to quarky cubes. Quark. Nice. Right. Um, should we talk about the Game of Thrones then? Da, 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 that is da, da, this morning. <laughs> Just on the chat before, Emma was suggesting we get Gordon the Gopher on as a guest. Mm. I think that that's a great idea. He's available. You can talk about, you know, his time in the broom cupboard. What, ha- what happened in the broom cupboard, Gordon? Oh, that's it. What happened in the broom cupboard stays in the broom cupboard. I think Apparently. he probably got a broom handle up the arse. <sighs> Special. Just a fist. Ooh. He was regularly fisted, wasn't he, Gordon? He was. You would imagine. He so. has to work through an interpreter as well. Well, that's he? that's what I'm thinking. Perhaps, mm. perhaps we could learn his language and... Put him on a Zoom call. All right. That can be your job this week. Oh, man. <laughs> God. <laughs> I'll, I'll look into it. I'll have my guys talk to his guys. Mm. So you've been following it, the this, this morning thing? I saw it on a newspaper in passing, and that's it. What was it? Phil leaves with immediate effect right. this morning. That's That's today's news, right? Yes. That's from today. Yeah. With no fanfare, no goodbye show. No. Just, uh, I think it seems he was, he jumped before he was pushed. So it seems they've fallen out. That's the story, isn't it? So the story that's in the press is all around um, his brother being convicted of... Noncery. <laughs> Noncery, yeah. Um, and the story in the, in the papers... Um, is that he did not inform Holly Willoughby that his brother was going to court, basically, for that charge. Well, okay. What's that got to do with her? I know. So or, she, or him. That she could manage the blowback. 
Didn't why? Why, why should there be any blowback? <laughs> I don't know. What are they it's doing something. in the green room? <laughs> and apparently they've fallen out. But I think it goes back to he got like the Game of Thrones thing. He got rid of Eamon and Ruth, didn't he? Oh, yes. Oh, uh, famously, him yeah. and Ruth. Don't like him. Hated each other. <laughs> well, she hated him. Ruth yes. Langford. Didn't Langford. like Schofield. Yep. Um, so, and apparently, yeah, there are rumors that he's... Um... A twat. Yeah. Well, on that note, I've got a clip. Um, Kim Woodburn. She's the very sort of severe-looking lady with uh, blonde hair who was on How Clean Is Your House? Then? Cleans your toilet with lemon and her bare hands. Yeah, I've got a... She's got bare hands. Yeah. The big hairy clawed things. Yeah. Looks like a unit, doesn't she? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Rather shagger than fighter. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like 80 as well. Is she? She's really old, yeah. Don't wow. lock it. She's, uh, yeah, a big unit, heavily well-constructed. Yeah. Adult female. Sturdy. <laughs> I've got a clip here where she talks about Phil and the situation. This is from about 10 days ago. So this is pre-sacking slash resignation of Scove. Well, I think it's time to bring Kim Woodburn in because you do know how nasty Philip Schofield can be, Kim. I've had so many run-ins. He is an obnoxious, horrible man, and I don't know why he's still on television. I went on his show, um, and he insulted me. He was rude. He was horrible. He was laughing at me. He was absolutely sniggering at me. Also, um, when I he's, he's I couldn't get in to see my friend skating recently. Um, he said, "Would you come on the night?" And certainly, I will. I and then it turned out that Philip and did not want me on the show because he would go among the audience and chat. And if I was on the front row, he thought I might say something to him. I wouldn't. It was my friend's show. But that's how hard it's got. And that's how powerful he is. And he should not be on television. He's a cruel, brutal little man. Cruel and brutal little man. Mm. I your words. No. And he's full of himself. On the subject of Holly, I'll be brief. Boobs. Holly has aided and abetted him all these years. Interesting choice of words there, aided mm. and abetting. That that brings up a sort of criminal connotation, doesn't it? Mm. As if she was covering for some sort of criminal activity he might have done. Mm. Now she sits on that sofa. She knows he comes out with things that are extremely unkind and nasty and uncalled for. Does she say, excuse me, Phil, I don't agree with you. No, she sits going, oh, Philip, ah, Philip. She has no point of view. Mm. Why is she on the but show? He's... Oh. <laughs> Sounded a bit like my mum when she's going off on one. Same generation. Yeah. Zero fucks given. This no. is this is the truth. This is my truth. Tell me yours. Exactly, yeah. This is how I see it. If you don't like it, get fucked. <laughs> and uh, from, I think this is from Thursday, she goes even harder. Well, Kim Woodburn, the slight difference is, though, Care and Angela are battling on. They sort of know they hate each other, but they're battling on as a duo. Whereas Holly Willoughby, she wants shot... Of Philip Schofield. She wants nothing to do with him. Well, she's a two-faced bitch. Woohoo. Leave it there. Shots. That's not shots fired, is it? That's nuke dropped. Yeah. Tactical nuke. Media hand grenade. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. 
Sorry, I'm not. Look, look, I'll say it again. I'm sorry to repeat myself. Holly Willoughby is not all sweetness and light, my love. For years she said, oh, I'll stick by Phil. I love Phil. We love each other. We're best friends on set mm. and off set. Mm. What, does, what did Scoff say? Holly's my rock. Mm. They are literally the best mates. So <laughs> amazing <laughs> in their love. The fucking... I mean, we covered that whole coming out thing. What was it, two years ago? Yeah. In great detail. Yeah. And I just felt sorry for his wife and his kids, for fuck's sake. Mm. The fact that... And the way he, he was playing a PR game with that whole thing. And there, I think she's as bad as him. Holly's as bad as him. And she she just wants to distance herself from whatever might be coming out mm. in the next few months about our mate, Phil. Mm. And, uh, you know, she looks after... Holly looks, looks after number one. Mm. You know? Number one. The moment she knows that bullets are being fired at Phil, she's now saying... Oh, I'll work without him. I'll work. I'll work. I'll, I'll run the show without him. What a two-faced bitch! And I'll say what I said the other evening. She's aided and abetted Philip for years. She, she uses the term "aided and abetted" again. Mm. I'm not convinced that's an accident. I think she's probably choosing her words carefully there, but maybe not. Maybe she's signalling something for those with ears to hear. Hmm. I like, mean, he's... like professional media deconstructors such as ourselves. Oh, <laughs> well, maybe you, but um, <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Think... chimpanzees named Bobo and Captain Pickles. I doubt anyone. Nice. I don't know why I played that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Is he still going to be allowed to sell cars? Oh yeah, that's it now. Brand destruction. Yeah, that's it. It's end of career. No. Mm, well, you, because you... ITV were bullish in the statement today saying we've got a new series coming out um mm. uh primetime series that's going to be Hosted helmed by helmed by phil yeah. yeah we'll see we will see itv that's probably damage limitation maybe i don't know mm. it's weird how it's all happening around the the brother trial isn't it as well that's strange because that should not be related whatsoever no and he disowned him didn't he while ago apparently he disowned him after he's found guilty yeah i think um who knows who knows what was said God. in private between them we can only speculate it's probably not fair to speculate no. we'll just wait till next week when it's uh, serialized in the daily sport yeah it's a bit of a weird one i always find it interesting um <coughs> that we all have our own perceptions of people on television. Like, you think you know them. Rock cunts! Yeah, but then, like, obviously people know the rumours, don't they? There was something else, you know, about somebody else, a famous... Uh, Chef? I don't know. It could have been, like, a famous presenter who was known in the industry to be a bit sort of handsy. Oh, yeah, Jimmy Savile. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was that one as well, wasn't there? Yeah, but there's more. There's loads of him, isn't there? Yeah, and it's full of them. Too it's scared. full of these creeps, and they cover for them. Yeah, so there's that, isn't there? Um, because it's money. The money talks. Yeah, we've got to cover these. We've invested too much in this guy. Mm. We've got to, you know, there, there'll be who's the the PR, the fucking famous PR, Max Clifford, who went to, mostly yeah. went to prison. <laughs> yeah, that, that was his game. 
That was Max mm. Clifford's game. Yeah. And we know people who've worked in, in journalism, in the media. Mm-hmm. And there are stories that go up, go about about certain celebrities. And it's common knowledge. Everyone in the industry knows about it. Yeah, and you can't report it. Because of the injunctions. Mm. And, you know, I've seen rumours that there might be an injunction being lifted over Old Scorf in a few months. <laughs> we shall see. Mm. We well, next week, see. will it be this morning with Holly and, and AI? <laughs> Just get ChatGPT to do it. Yeah. Hosting. Hosted is modern, you know. Maybe um, a hologram? Yeah. Holly, Holly, Holly and the hologram. Hologram. <laughs> oh, what? Like a... <laughs> from Red Dwarf? Yeah. yeah. A Holly. A yeah. Holly hologram. That would be... Yeah, I might even watch that. <laughs> That'd be... Uh, yeah, no. Yeah, I'd watch that. Can I, can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? I'd watch that. Can you get an amen? I just got one, did I? All oh, right, okay. All right, sorry. Try again. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? Amen. Hey, thank you. Thank you for humouring me. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <sighs> I know, he just keeps talking, doesn't he? He just kept talking in one long, incredibly unbroken sentence, moving from topic to topic so that no one had a chance to interrupt. It was really quite hypnotic. Did he work? He tried fucking lenses. So like... Right. So we, we'll watch the Holly. Yeah, I wonder what's going to happen on Monday. Is it going to be Holly and uh, Gino? I or think Dermot or Leary. Dermot, Dermot yeah. or Dreary. Dermot and um, Alison. Alison Hammond, is yeah. she called? Yeah, that's my money. Wife of Philip Hammond, former chancellor. <laughs> no. Isn't it? No. And inventor of the Hammond organ. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Right, let's, uh, let's move on. I love this story. This is my favourite story of the week. A man in southeast Colorado tried getting out of a DUI by putting his dog, yes, his dog, in the driver's seat. How drunk was he? <laughs> Guess we do. Police in Springfield pulled the car over Saturday night for speeding. While the officer was walking to the car, he watched the driver try to switch places with the dog. Police say two other people who were sober were in the back seat of the car. Police say they don't know why the sober people weren't driving. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? Are you retarded? Was it Santa's little helper? Police I know, yeah, it sounds, it sounds like Homer. <laughs> the two yeah. sober people were Bart and Lisa. <laughs> yeah. They weren't old enough to drive. Yeah, That's pretty wild, isn't it? <laughs> Imagine going to oh. the window. <laughs> going to the window with a flashlight. <laughs> License and registration, please. Registration? <laughs> 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 yeah. Rot roll. No, rot roll. It was red. It was red. Just play along, Matt. Okay. Don't take it too seriously. Don't, crit- don't stop critiquing me. Um, my Scooby Doo impressions. No, I wasn't. It was just I was getting my head around the story. To All right. With you. Yeah, he, he gets it's pulled wild. over for, and he's obviously drunk. Yeah. And his dog must have been in the passenger seat, and he swaps places. With the dog. That's mad. You know, it, people do say the owners look like their dogs, don't they? Or dogs look like their owners. Yeah. Oh, God. 
Isn't the burden on the officer to prove that the dog wasn't driving? <laughs> yeah. Well, the it says in the report that the officer sees him changing places. But, uh, you know, that's his word against the dogs. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to hold up in a court of law, is it? <laughs> Put that spaniel on the stand. Uh, you know, <laughs> I want to I cross-examine him. A court of poor. <laughs> hey! hey! Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, oh, I love the puns. Throw me a freaking bone here. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Sorry, that joke was rough. Oh, <laughs> come on, Ben. Can't think of <laughs> <laughs> what a mastiff waste of time. Oh wow, wow. Pow. I can do this all night. Mm. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Emma says he was a patronising git on that as well. Uh, I think it's still talking about Scope, not the dog. Not the dog. Yeah. talking about the cube. The cube. <laughs> you know, I quite like that show back in the days when I used yeah. to watch TV. I thought it was quite uh, innovative. 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 I think it would have been better as a sphere. <laughs> <laughs> A, a bit of instability. A textahethodron. Yeah, yeah, one of those 4D <laughs> things. Yeah, I just want all the platonic solids massing together. <laughs> and it should change shape during the rounds. Oh, wow. It was something that I would like to, a bit like the crystal maze, it was something I would have liked to have a go at. Yeah. yeah. No, I want yeah. to put myself against the cube. I figure I could throw balls into a basket in a cube. That's where you do at work all day, isn't it? Throwing, that's what office jobs is, isn't it? Just throwing rolled up paper into a basket. I wish. I don't even work in an that's, office. That's, that's <laughs> what you get from TV. Yeah. It's the common trope, isn't it? Mm. No, I, I suppose nothing gets printed these days other than my show notes because I'm, I'm that old school. I still have to have a, a tangible... I trust you file those away in a binder. <coughs> no, they put them in recycling. No, they're just there's a massive episodes. pile here from that's that stuff that I use because um, it's printed on one side. I, I recycle them by writing these notes. <coughs> my notes, so my notes for tonight's interview. I've got Edgar Casey, Frederick Oliver, Rudolf Steiner. If we'd have kept them all, we could have auctioned it off. Yeah, like set lists. Wow, yeah. yeah. Cracky. And then we could retire from podcasting, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That, would, that would do it, no? Well, I think everyone would be happy. Fuck it. Like a good paperweight. Fuck Graham Hancock. Fuck Graham Hancock! Oh, can I say that? <laughs> ah, sick. Oh. Well, I think we've done everything. That is. Okay. The sun getting real low. The sun is getting low. Would you not say? I would say. Oh, I just Depends want to... on your to... perspective. I want to go to one of those intergalactic space conferences, you know. Hello, Diane. I understand you're an empath. <laughs> I'm a very sensitive man myself. Oh. I'm doing a thesis on inter... To be fair, she, her accents are definitely worse than mine. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, you could get a, a job on Star Trek. As a counsellor. As counsellor. Counsellor Phil. Counsellor Phil. You could probably... Squeeze you into a... <laughs> Suit. Yeah, I could fit in one of those suits. I'd love one of those next-gen uniforms, man. Yeah, you can uh, probably get him. I'm sure Mike AliExpress. from OBDM has one, yeah. I think you're talking upwards of £50. Pounds oh, no. For a good one. That. So, PayPal link in the donations, you know. <laughs> what do you call it? GoFundMe 
Amish Phil's um, next gen. Would you have a blue one? Because you're like a doctor. Congratulations on becoming a doctor of thugonomics. I think I'd have a red one, you know, the classic instant death away team. Yeah. Isn't that command? I think red Ops. is command. Yeah. Uh, orange is uh, yellow's engineering, no? Yeah, what's mustard? Blue's science officer, isn't it? Or medical. Well, depending where you, you're mixing OS, original series, and next oh, gen. So, oh, shit. Did they mix it up? Yeah. So, because uh, Spock was blue, wasn't he? Everything's black in Discovery. So. <laughs> yeah, and just massive explosions everywhere. <laughs> Mating rituals. <laughs> Would you care to join me in some empirical research? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Wait a minute. Something right. <laughs> no. With her accents, man. Yeah, so Marina Sirtis. Right. Oh, well. Should we fuck off into the night? I think, you know, it's the right thing to do. Are you not entertained? I hope you're entertained. I am. That's all that matters. I've yeah. had my fun. You fill. Yeah. You base. Based Sigma Chad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love you. Right. We'll sign off then. We'll come back next week. Yeah. Do this all over again. Yeah. Again and again Uh, and again. uh, A dead ringer, a ringer of a guest next week. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, I'm not here next week. No, unfortunately not. You're going to miss, you're going to miss an author whose book you own. Yeah, well, it's somewhere. I think I've lent it out to someone. So... Sorry. Well, you won't be here anyway. It's fine. No, it's fine. I'll, I'll call I'll, for you. I'll listen. I might even yeah, get on the chat. Get on the chat, yeah, and yeah. Uh, throw some links. Make, I can make you an admin. Can you? Presumably, Woo. like, channels have admins in the chats. I don't know how it works. Hell in order. Just off Amish in. Id. In. I know, just, there's a Amish there. admin. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, yeah. There is a pun there, isn't there? There is. You need to change your YouTube handle to Big Chungus. What did you do with Big Chungus? I think it's probably been taken. Mm. Maybe two Gs. Yeah, I'll have a look. Okay, TCFN. Yes. Yeah. Goodbye. TB. Text back. Tatty back. <laughs> uh, what was it? Uh, GTSY? <laughs> Grand <Great>. Turismo. <laughs> Sex yacht. <laughs> That's the the vinegar strokes. (laughs) 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 Seal the envelope. Fill in your condoms. (laughs) Boot your teacher out. Bobo and Captain Pickles. I think you're hitting hitting the point, Phil, that uh... I'm too fat. I'm too stupid. I'm too lazy. I don't get out of bed in the morning. I smoke drugs. Give me money. What, what, what a baby. What a big baby. Just get on with the game. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too fat. I'm too stupid. And these guys, I mean, they're having fun now, but my goodness, they've also got a dark side. <laughs> It really bothers me. Oh, fuck.
They have to pay out 159,000 billion dollars less. Hi, can I get a flat white piece? That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. Well, she's a two-faced bitch, isn't she?